0: Yet he found a degree of fame in the fact that he was a man who was saved, sort of redeemed by birds. And I don't mean saved from his sin or redeemed from his guilt, but the birds did save him from the boredom and loneliness of solitary confinement. He was a violent man whose angry spirit was tamed by the small little creatures that flew into his life. From his sad situation in prison, he even wrote a book called Digest of the Diseases of Birds. And by way of birds, and by way of this book about them, through his otherwise sad situation, he actually made a contribution to benefit society. Well, the title of this message is Visited by Birds. And rather than looking at a bad man in prison, we will be studying the life of a good man, a prophet of God, who at this point in life is nevertheless in hiding. He's in a type of solitary confinement. He's away from society, away from friends, away from entertainment, away from any interaction with other human beings. He is isolated and alone. And strangely enough, for this man, the lonely, barren situation in which he finds himself happens to be the center of God's will. Are you listening? Did you hear that? He was in a lonely, barren circumstance, yet he was in the center of God's will. Have you ever felt like God's will put you in the midst of a lonely, barren circumstance? And equally strange is the fact that there, in the center of God's will, in that lonely, barren place, he was blessed by visits from birds. Not doves, not eagles. Actually, it was a kind of bird some would call a dirty bird. Has God ever used a dirty bird to bring blessing into your life? We start with 1 Kings 17, verses 2 through 4. I read from the International Version. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, hide in the Careth ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. From our text, there are three things for us to learn about the will of God as it applies to our lives. Number one, God's will can take us down unexpected paths. Have you ever found yourself in a place you never expected to be. Ever found yourself facing something that you never really thought in your life you would have to face? Have you ever found yourself thinking, why am I in the middle of this? Why did God let this happen to me? Well, Previous to our stories we consider today, Elijah has marched into the presence of King Ahab and made an astonishing announcement. We saw it back in 1 Kings 17, verse 1. is what we preached on last week. Ahab was a mean and evil king. He was a vengeful man. Even so, Elijah had said to this malevolent ruler, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. In making this announcement, Elijah had declared both a judgment and a penalty. Ahab had angered the Lord God of Israel. Elijah was informing him of the consequence to come upon him and his nation because of the sinful actions that had been committed. There would be a terrible drought. It would not rain for years. This is what Elijah had announced. And at the same time that happened, Ahab had also been able to see that this man, Elijah, was the agent of the consequence. Elijah was the one telling him, It's not going to rain. And Elijah is the one saying, when it does rain again, it will only happen because I say so. Wow. That put Elijah at the very point of the controversy between Ahab and God. Would you have wanted to be at that point? Elijah was the human authority God was using to deal with the spiritual failure of a nation and its leadership. Well, what happened next? The text suggests there was no conversation or discussion to follow. We get the picture that immediately after delivering his message, Elijah vacated the premises. You've heard the saying, Elvis has left the building? Well, in this case, Elijah had left the building. He did not wait around to see what Ahab would say or do. There was no negotiation. He had not come to town to make a deal. This prophet of God had not. He'd only come to town to say, this is the way it's going to be, and there's not one thing you can do about it. And once he said that, he left. And this brings us to verse 2 in the text. We're told, Then the word of the Lord came unto him. And that's a short but especially important statement. It means Elijah received specific direction from God as to where to go next. And before we look at where he went, let's ask ourselves the question, Where do you think God would tell him to go next? Where do you think God would lead him now? After doing something so amazing, like what Elijah has just done in delivering this drastic announcement and delivering it in a courageous fashion, although it was a difficult situation. Now, what's going to happen? What does God have for him? Is, is a vacation the next thing on the agenda? Is there going to be some sort of reward? Is this next stop going to be the Holiday Inn? I mean, think about celebrity athletes and what they often say after they win a major victory. Peyton Manning said it a year ago when the Broncos won the Super Bowl. This past year, Tom Brady said it. Reporter asked, now that you've won the big game, what are you going to do? That's right. The athlete replies, I'm going to Disney World. Well, well, God did not have a Disney World in mind for Elijah. Instead, the prophet was told to go to a place called Kareth. Look now at verse 3. This is, we've already read it, but look again, this is where God says, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I've directed the ravens to supply you with food there. Now, Elijah was in danger. Ahab would be out to get him. Once the drought really set in, Ahab would be looking for Elijah, trying to say, well, I'm going I'm to make you cause it to rain again. So Elijah needed a place of refuge. Kareth would be the place. However, Kareth was not a vacation place. It was not a place of creature comforts. As used in verse 4, the Hebrew word translated brook is Nahal. It means torrent course or the course a torrent would follow. This means what you may have in the past pictured as sort of a brook. If you've heard this story before, it really wasn't a brook. What it was was a small stream in the bottom of a ravine or a canyon. The stream was supplied with water that would flow down from higher places. When it rained a lot, the stream could be a torrent. When it did not rain, the stream would be little more than a muddy trickle. Well, what had Elijah just told Ahab? There's not going to be dew nor rain on this land. Which meant the torrent at Kareth was destined to be at best a muddy trickle. So God is sending his prophet to hide by a pitiful stream of water in the bottom of a dusty canyon. Now, I picture myself to be somewhat uh, adventurous. I like challenges. I think normal is boring. I like unusual places. I like unusual things. But I must say, Kareth is not a place where I would want to go. Especially as it was back then. I mean, fundamentally, it was a whole lot of nothing out in the middle of nowhere. And we learned last week that Elijah had come from a small town out in the middle of nowhere. But Careth Ravine was far more nowhere than any other kind of nowhere that we might know about. I mean, this was really as nowhere as you can get. No houses, no people, no food supply, barely enough water. Why did God send Elijah there? This puts before us a truth, a strong truth to consider about the Christian life, and that is sometimes the will of God does seem to put us in the middle of nowhere. Sometimes the center of God's will may even seem to be a place where we really don't think we want to be. A classic example of this is the story of Joseph, as told in the Old Testament book of Genesis. Joseph was a young man who chose to obey God, he turned down pleasure and convenience to do the right thing. Well, what happened next? Did his choice to follow the will of God bring him comfort and prosperity? The answer is no. His reputation was ruined. He went to prison. He remained there for at least two years. He was in the center of God's will. It's an amazing thing to think about. He was in the center of God's will, yet stuck in a place where it seemed there would be no possibility for him to ever pursue his life's goals or follow his dreams. Now, his story did have a happy ending, but it took quite a while for that happy ending to arrive. God's will took Joseph down an unexpected path. Then how about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? as told in the Old Testament book of Daniel. These men followed God's will. When they were asked to bow down before an idol, they refused to do so. Where did that commitment take them? Did that give them wealth, health, and happiness? No, it put them in the midst of a fiery furnace. I don't think that was a place where they wanted to go. And of course, we know a miracle happened in that furnace that we still talk about today and we still rejoice in today. But before the miracle, they found themselves in bondage and condemned. There are numerous examples in the Bible of people doing what God has asked them to do and thereby finding themselves facing new challenges and hardships because God's will involved such things. Now listen carefully. I'm not saying this is always the case or always the way it goes. God works in mysterious ways. But it is important for us to understand that being in the center of God's will is not necessarily an easy place to be. For a time, it may seem more boring than exciting. It may seem more stressful than fruitful. It may seem more difficult than productive. At times, the center of God's will may be similar to what Elijah found at the bottom of Kareth Canyon. Nevertheless, to be in the center of God's will is always the right place to be. If you feel like you're in a Kareth kind of situation right now in your life, yet you're honoring God with your life, you can be sure God knows what he's doing, and a happy ending eventually will come. With God, it always does. God's will can take us down unexpected paths. That's the first thing we see in the story. The second thing we see is God's will can involve unusual provision. It's Time to talk about the birds. Because Kareth Ravine was a place of no food supply, it was necessary for meals to be flown in to Elijah. You've heard of Meals, you've heard of meals on Wheels? Well, this was the original Meals on wings, and it was a marvelous thing. Verse 4 tells us of God's promise to use ravens to bring in food. Verse 6 of the text tells us that is exactly what happens, and it elaborates by saying the ravens brought him bread and meat two times a day. I recently came across a news story about an 8-year-old girl in Seattle named Gabby Mann. She's best friends with a flock of crows. And by the way, if you check out the scientific classification of crows, you'll find they're pretty much the same thing as ravens. So if you've seen more crows in your life than ravens, you know what I'm talking about today. But when Gabby was four years old, she would often eat outdoors, and while out there, she would spill her food, as four-year-olds do. Well, the birds noticed this, and they came to eat the food that Gabby spilled, and then she noticed that the birds were coming to eat the food that she spilled, so she would spill more food, so more birds would come in. And over the course of time, she, she sort of developed a friendship with the birds. It became her daily practice to drop food for them. And over the course of time, as this continued, the birds started bringing presents back to Gabby. Once it was an earring, another time a broken light bulb. They left a button, a paper clip, a rock, a Lego piece Eventually, Gabby made a collection of her gifts from the birds, bagging them separately and marking the date, description, and location where she found these gifts. And she says her most prized possession from the birds is a little plastic heart. She thinks it's their way of showing her how much they love her. Now, this is a true story. It is a true story, but I must frankly say I doubt that that a crow knows the difference between a plastic heart and a bottle cap. So I think them bringing Gabby a plastic heart is just a matter of chance, or maybe we should say God-ordained happenstance, but I do know that one of the habits of raven-like birds is that of picking up things and taking them other places. They carry trinkets and baubles around. Now, there's another interesting trait of ravens that you may not have thought about before, and that is they can learn to talk like a parrot, In captivity, ravens often develop a better vocabulary than do many breeds of parrots. Scientists say ravens have one of the most well-developed brains of any bird. They communicate. They actually like to play. They have the ability to solve problems. So Elijah was fed by a smart and fascinating kind of bird. Does this mean he became friends with the birds? Do you think he taught them to say a few words, play a few games, and keep him company? <laughs> we don't know, but it's fun to think about, and frankly, I think it's a very likely possibility. He was there in Careth alone for a year, so why not enjoy the birds? But here's the one thing we do know directly from the Scripture, and that is the ravens brought him bread and meat two times a day. Now look at the text carefully. They didn't bring him roadkill. Well, think about it. They didn't even bring him wheat and berries. They brought bread and meat, which means it was prepared food. So the question is, where did they get the prepared food? And this brings up yet another habit of ravens, and that is they are thieves. They have no problem flying in and taking something right off a table. And commentators have suggested that the ravens were actually taking food from Ahab's own court. They imagine the birds flying in, stealing meat from the tables, and taking things from the cooking pots, and bread from his open markets, and then hauling it back to Elijah. And I was thinking, well, if I was Elijah, I'd say, hey guys, next time around, I need some apple pie. I mean, we might as well create a shopping list here. But whether they were taking it from Ahab himself, and that may just be a romantic kind of thinking or whether they were taking it from uh, market displays of other people in the region and off the tables of other people in the region, the one thing for sure is they were not bringing him rot and a refuse. They were bringing him food someone had prepared. Very likely, it was happening because they were stealing it from somebody somewhere. And This, of course, is a marvelous and miraculous provision. It's an exciting thing, but at the same time, there's something difficult about this. Because to the Israelites, ravens were unclean birds. In light of the intellect and personality of a raven, it makes sense that God would use such a bird in this situation. But then again, in light of the nasty habits of this bird, we may wonder, why did God use this kind of bird in this situation? Back in the book of Deuteronomy, which was the spiritual instruction book for the Old Testament believers, Deuteronomy 14, verses 14 through 19 told the people of Israel that when it came to birds, they were not allowed to eat ravens because ravens were unclean. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, verse 17, Scripture speaks of ravens as scavengers that would pick out the eye from a dead body. Remember from the book of Genesis, the story of Noah? He sent out a raven from the ark. It didn't come back. Why? Why? Because ravens have no problem parking on a dead body, floating around and pecking away at it and eating. He had to wait to send out a dove to get a sign of life. Well, God is a God of miracles. He could have used a clean bird to supply his profit, but instead he used a dirty bird. It was a smart bird. It was an entertaining bird. A bird with character traits that made it suitable for the task. But still, it was a dirty bird. And what does this say to us? Well, in the very least, it reminds us God can and sometimes does use negative things, even things that we might view as bad things, to bring good our way. If you had something happen in your life recently that doesn't seem like a good thing, uh, don't doubt that God can't use that thing to still bring good your way. I have a friend by the name of Andre Cole. Andre traveled for many years with Campus Crusade for Christ. He had a tremendously effective ministry, especially to college-age students. When I first met Andre, I was young, and he was well-seasoned in ministry, so I asked him for some advice. What do you have to say to a young guy just getting into this? And I've never forgotten what he told me. He said, Dwayne, one of the best things I can tell you is I have learned far more from my critics than I've ever learned from my friends. And we know, he went on to explain to me how, how hard it is to discover somebody doesn't like you, or somebody doesn't like what you've done, and yet you, you have to deal with this person, and you try to show love to this person, and you try to understand the problem the person has with you. And Andre was saying that can strengthen your character and make you a better person. Well, most Bible scholars agree that Elijah remained in this Careth ravine by himself, fed by birds for at least a year, maybe more. It was a place where God protected him from the wrath of Ahab. It was a place where God provided for him by way of unclean yet clever birds. But it certainly was also a place where Elijah learned some lessons. I believe it was a place where Elijah became a better man. We don't know exactly what all he learned there at Kareth. But we do know or we can assume that part of the learning involved patience and embracing the truth that even when God doesn't do what we expect him to do, And even when God brings things into our life, we would never expect him to bring into our life. God yet always knows what he is doing. This brings us to the third lesson we can learn from the story. God's will can involve unexpected problems. Sometimes things don't seem to get better. Sometimes bad goes to worse, even for a believer. Let's review the situation of Elijah. He's sent to the bottom of Careth Ravine. Not a great place to be, but at least there's water and birds are bringing him food. That'll work. It's superior to being taken captive and tortured. Everything's going to be okay. Then the stream dried up. That's what you find at verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Not even a prophet of God could live without water. Do you think Elijah found himself wondering, what, what are you doing, God? Why did you allow this to happen? What, what's going on? And I wonder if there's anyone here today who might be asking a similar question. God, why did you allow that to happen? What's going on? I have a dear friend who several years ago learned she had a lump in her breast. Cancer. She had the necessary surgery and suffered through chemotherapy. It was a miserable experience, but finally she was told she was cancer-free. She rejoiced. We rejoiced with her. She'd gone through something that was far from ideal, but at least she was going to be okay. It was over. Then, in a follow-up visit at a medical facility, she discovered the surgeon had missed a small lump. It too had cancerous potential. It meant she had to go through another surgery. And all the way through that miserable process of chemotherapy again. I'm proud to say her faith remained intact. But it was very hard for her to understand, God, why? Why, why? why do I have to go through this again? It was already bad. Now it's worse. God, why do you let it get worse? Brooks do dry up. We might find ourselves facing an unexpected physical problem or maybe a financial disaster. In terms of a job and funds coming in, the stream has gone dry and we don't know what to do. It may be the loss of a relationship or the loss of a loved one. Somebody we thought would always be there for us suddenly isn't there. And we wonder, God, why? Why did you let the brook run dry? And then before the brook does run dry, there's that doubt and concern to be endured as we watch it start to run dry and wonder how dry is it going to get? How bad is this going to be? I imagine Elijah at the bottom of that muddy ravine, watching the days go by and seeing that muddy trickle of water become less and less. And I imagine him wondering, God, are you going to start this thing up again? Are you going to work some kind of miracle? Remember how you provided water for the children of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness? Are you going to do this for me? But but God doesn't do it. And he wakes up that day and there's no water. The miracle of the birds has kept him fed, but there's nothing to drink. What do you do when bad turns to worse and there's no solution in sight? What do you do when you've been praying for God to fix things and instead it seems he's allowed them to deteriorate? Well, what we need to do is keep on waiting and keep on trusting like Elijah did. Very interesting to look at the text. You do not see anything to indicate Elijah is unhappy with God or bitter about his circumstance. You see him accepting the path God has given him to follow, accepting the place where God put him, accepting the provision that God gives him. He even accepts the problem of the brook running dry. Now in our next sermon, and I trust you'll come back next week. We will see that God does have a solution for Elijah's predicament. God did take care of him, as God always does, and God always will. We will even see that by way of God's plan for Elijah and this strange path, others were blessed. A happy ending is coming. But since Elijah had to wait to find out what the ending would be, we're going to wait till next week too. What we've seen today, from the story about God's man being sent to a muddy stream at the bottom of a ravine he was fed by dirty birds until the brook dried up, is God's will for our lives may not always make sense to us. I came across a fascinating quotation. A preacher was talking about the reality of God and his mysterious ways. I just keep the slide up on the screen. To go back one if you can. A preacher was talking about the reality of God and his mysterious ways, and a heckler interrupted him and shouted, I want a God that I can understand. And the preacher answered back, God refuses to be that small. Do you really want a God that can fit inside the limits and confines of your feeble brain or mine? Don't we need a God that's bigger than that? Since God is the creator and worldly creatures, because God is God and we are not, we cannot expect God's path and plan for our lives to be the same as what we would have made it to be. In fact, if we really believe our God is a great and amazing God far beyond our comprehension, then relating to our God, we should expect the unexpected. And at the same time, we should also expect that God will always provide and never let us down. Listen to this. Even when the brook runs dry, God has ways of making the blessings flow. And I close with this. Suppose I didn't understand there was a recipe for chocolate chip cookies. Suppose I thought they just magically appeared. So one day I wander into the kitchen and I see my wife putting some baking soda in a mixing bowl. I think, yuck, who wants to eat baking soda? Then I see her put salt and seasoning into the mixing bowl and I think, yuck and more yuck. I do not want to eat salt. They say seasoning, salt and shortening. No way, I'm not going to eat that. Then I walk out of the kitchen before she completes the recipe. I do not see the sugar and chocolate chips go in. I do not return to the scene until the cookies are done. When that happens, I bite into a cookie and go, Mmm, this is good. You mean to tell me that stuff you put into the mixing bowl turned into this? And my wife Mary says, Yes, all the ingredients together make something great, don't they? And the idea is the recipe that God has for our lives almost always includes some unexpected ingredients. Even some things we may think we don't like. While it's all coming together, we may be mystified by the process and we may be frustrated by the need to wait till the final result. But at the end of it all, we will see our God makes no mistakes and his recipe is perfect. No matter where God sends us, no matter what God sends our way, even if he allows some dirty birds to come into our lives... God can and will always work all things together for good. And let's bow our heads. I ask you to bow your heads so that you might take some time to think directly and personally about what you've just heard. And that in an extra way you might try to hear the voice of God today as it speaks within your heart. Has your life gone down an unexpected path? something unexpected come into your life? Maybe something that you don't think you want there, but nevertheless, it's something God can use. And the challenge to me, in my mind, most of all, relating to this message, is to simply be a people who are surrendered to God's perfect will. And to be those who put our trust in the fact that God really does always know what he's doing. And so instead of fretting because the circumstance isn't what we want it to be, let's focus on what we can learn from it. How we can become better people. It might even even be time to thank God for some of the dirty birds that might have come our way. Father in heaven, you always know what you're doing. You work everything together for good. Thank you for how your hand is perfectly upon our lives. Thank you that we can trust you no matter what the path is we find ourselves on. Thank you for being a great and wonderful God who worked in the days of Elijah and still works in our days and our lives. Once again, we trust ourselves to you, grateful for your word, your truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.